Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobhana Xavier, and thank you so much for joining me today. In today's episode, we are joined by Mohammed Abdu, who is currently a visiting scholar at Cornell University and an assistant professor of sociology at the American University of Cairo to discuss his new book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances, published by Pluto Press in 2022. The book reimagines the parameters of political Islam and the possibilities of anarchistic interpretation of Islam and Islamic interpretation of anarchism, which is conceptualized as anarcha-Islam. The study is methodologically rooted in the hermeneutical tradition of the Quran and draws from radical indigenous, black, and Islamic anarchistic and social movements discourses, as well as BIPOC and queer thought. In outlining the commitments of anarcha Islam, the book covers topics of non-authoritarian structures of governmentality, non-capitalist approaches to property, and approaches to self-defense of violence. The book will be will be of use to scholars who think and teach on Quranic hermeneutics, political Islam, social movements, critical race studies, and decolonial approaches to Islam and Muslim communities. The book is also written particularly for activists on the ground involved in social movements and organizing. In our conversation today, Mohammed and I spoke about the origins or the genesis of the book, his own long career of, in activism, which has informed the book, methodological approaches taken in the book, such as Quranic hermeneutics and how that informs his conceptualization of anarchic itzahad, and what to take away from the book, especially if you are an activist on the ground. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mohammed Abdu about Islam and anarchism, relationships and resonances. Hi, Mohammed. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, Alhamdulillah. I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. 
Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you about your new book, Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances. Um, we have a tradition on our podcast, New Books Islamic Studies, to start with a little bit of an autobiographical note. So I wonder if you could share with us a little bit of what your intellectual journey was and what brought you to this moment to, to write this book and the work that you do. Jazakallah here uh, once again, Shobanan. I'm very humbled and honored to be with you uh, and on the show. And Assalamualaikum to all the virtual listeners. Uh, insofar as my journey, uh, I'm a self-identifying uh, scholar activist. I'm a Muslim settler of color on Turtle Island. I've uh, been active for about 22 years, um, post the anti-globalization 1999 uh, movements in Seattle, anti-war protests in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also with indigenous struggles like the Mohawks and Pantanego. Uh, over the Culberstone track, um, in which there was a quote-unquote dispute with the Canadian government and mining corporations there uh, at the time, uh, as well as with the Zapatistas, uh, indigenous Zapatista movements in Mexico, um, and um, and the Tahrir uprisings of 2011-2013, uh, though I obviously have very strong about what happened in 2013, but really involved in BIPOC liberation and social movements, uh, uh, particularly insofar as Palestine as well uh, for that period of time. And so far as my intellectual journey, um, uh, I'm a postdoc at Cornell. I'm a visiting scholar at the Naudi Center, uh, particularly the anti-racist uh, social justice program. I'm also an, Ameri- uh, an assistant professor at the American University of Cairo. I did my PhD at Queen's University in cultural studies, interdisciplinary studies on uh, Islam and queer Muslims, Islam, gender, and sexuality really um but all and my ma and my ba were in sociology at queens as well prior to that i was studying engineering um and i grew up uh, really i spent my life within the swana region i migrated to turtle island when i was about 16 in 1997-98 so so i think a lot of your personal stories really kind of come through in the book and and i wonder if you could say a little bit about like what, I mean, I, your activism obviously has inspired the book, but what prompted mm-hmm. you to writing this particular book? And as you're writing it, did you have a particular audience in mind? Because I do think it's like written in a particular way that it is, you know, it, it's a call to an action, right? So I'm like also thinking about who you uh, who you wrote it for. Thank you for raising that point. Um, uh, as you note, I, I and I heard from an indigenous sister the other day, and and she noted to me that this is a book written for BIPOC people. Um, she doesn't really uh, read white folks into it, uh, and you know, both flattered and, and humbled as because certainly white people are a part of the audience, but they're not the central figuration of the audience within itself. Um, uh, and I seek to distinguish here also whiteness as a phenotype versus cultures of whiteness, which even BIPOC people have internalized, given that we continue to be colonized subjects. Um, insofar as um, uh, that's insofar as the audience, insofar as the uh, former part of your question, um, uh, I really saw that there was a great deal that was going on and missing within uh, BIPOC social movements, uh, particularly from my experience on the ground. Uh, there's something for Muslims to learn from, quote unquote, anarchists, and uh, there are all kinds of BIPOC anarchists as well. Islam is anarchistic, in my humble opinion. It's anti-authoritarian, it's anti-capitalist, it's premised upon social justice, and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, as I said, we have internalized cultures of whiteness. It's the migrant settler of color. There are 
Muslim diasporas, migrants uh, that are engaged in the recolonization, uh, ongoing genocide, land theft, anti-Black, afterlife slavery projects, as Saadi Hartman would call it, and so on and so forth. And to me, that goes against the very fundamental uh, fundamentals and tenets of al-Hijra uh, or migration within itself. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala permits that, but nonetheless, it's incumbent that one upholds certain ethical political commitments that all inform one's identity, whether you're a Muslim or anarchist or whatever else that it may be. So certainly the activist portion does inform it. So does the scholarly, though, uh, having grown up within the Middle East uh, in a certain undistanced, distanced way, uh, attending Jomar prayers, uh, listening to the plights of the Ummah. Um, Bosnia, I lived the first Gulf War. I was in the United Arab, Arab Emirates at the time, studying with Jalan, he was over 100 years old, and he was really the one that taught me the Quran. There was a sense that, you know, um, let's say leftist or socialist-y uh, politics, that social justice was at the very heart, was at the very trunk. Uh, was the very foundation uh, of all faiths, let alone Islam. Um, um, but it also baffles me the extent to which, and and mind you, this is a book, if I may divert for a moment, this is a book on language, and this is a book on power, this is a book on land, and, and the politics of mistranslation, particularly in an Aurelian age where liberalism stole the words and in, in the meanings behind them. What I mean by that is, is just to give an example, is Orientalist Muslims and non-Muslims continue to translate, for instance, Islam as submission. The actual Arabic word for submission is khulua. And of course, what submission suggests is this benevolent, you know, uh, capacity to bend the knee with any, without any kind of self-reflection, without any will or choiceful, uh, choice-filled deliverance, as Amina would do to translate it. So the actual word Islam comes from the root salama, three-letter roots, which is to hand over, to give, but that then becomes based on choice, intellect, and so on. Same thing with anarchism. Anarchism tends to be mistranslated as faldawiya, which means chaos, anarchy, and we say it all the time in the news, right? But the actual Arabic word for it is lafultawiya, which means without authority. Um, so, so all these elements of, of language, of activism, of upbringing, of intellectualism, you know, reading, you know, the pan-Africanist decolonial theories and theorists and, and feminists and so on and so forth from a very young age, actually, if and on and otherwise, uh, really culminated up until this moment uh, to understand the psychoaffective violence that BIPOC people have been exposed to and what ties our relations as Black, Indigenous, people of color uh, together. I wanted to tell a story. Uh, what is the significance of 1492 in Andalusia, Spain, and how insofar as Muslims and Jews being evicted at the hand of the sword, uh, exiled, forcibly converted, murdered, and so on, and Muslims and Jews being relegated as savages, as heathens, and then indigenous people with the same impetus, uh, conquistador, reconquista sort of impetus vis-a-vis -vis the, the Colombian invasions of the America, the setting up of the settler colonial project within Turtle Island, what ties it? What ties it when you know a third, a fifth of the transatlantic middle passes slaves were Muslims from West Coast of Africa and the Iberian Peninsula? And there's a great deal of literature, you know, that just surprisingly only been coming out really in the past decade and so on and so forth. But I'm actually glad that it is coming out. Uh, what ties all these struggles together? Um, and how do we connect? How do you connect Black Lives Matter with No Dakota Pipelines? How do you connect this with the freer and the struggle for Palestine and Palestinian liberation? So, uh, and what's 
kind of story can we tell? And particularly from a social movement perspective here. So, um, and from an interdisciplinary perspective, albeit from a social movement perspective, how do we mobilize and how do we deal with the ethics of disagreement given between us? Because we do have a lot of conflicts. We do have a lot of stereotypes amongst ourselves, right? And and how do we overcome those internalized uh Microfascisms, if you will, of the self, given the images, given the stereotypes that we do have of one another. Mm. So, yeah, um, and I think in in answering that question, you've also given us a little bit of a, the main idea or the main thing that you're doing, like an eagle's eye view of the book. Um, and you're relating these two big conceptual ideas, experiences, stories of Islam and anarchy together. Mm. Um, so, can you say a little bit more about that? And I think you're also coming at it from a really unique um, positionality, uh, both as you say, from the experience of being in Turtle Island, and then also in um, um, kind of the regions that you're located, perhaps in Egypt as well. So there's a lot going on. Um, and the other thing I really um, was compelled by is that it also feels like this is a hermeneutical project, because your kind of engagement with Arabic and the way in which you're going back to the text, like at the center of all of this is really the Quran and you interpreting that text. And so I think you could also kind of easily miss that if you just kind of look at the title and think, oh, this is about Islam and anarchy, whereas every single chapter you begin with, you start from specific either um, Arabic terminology or Quranic, um, you know, chapters versus and that's from where you tell the story and folks might not initially get that right and so I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about that as a methodological process or how that informed the way that this book came out um sorry if that was a lot but I'm also just picking up on some of the threads that you just mentioned as well of course I'll start with the uh, uh with the latter perhaps point if you don't mind I, I might need you to um rephrase the former point but I'll start with the latter because it is a very very important point um the book is political political theological it is hermeneutical like you said uh, I came to a realization very very early on uh as beginning to identify as anarchistic if you will given that anarchism tends to be a eurocentric tradition that emerged at the turns of the 19th 20th century etc and the majority of anarchist circles tend to be white or animated by white folks great deal uh no gods no masters speaking from a perspective that is uh immensely obviously secular christian euro-american christian and instead to totalize all religions all spiritualities as dogmatic as hierarchical as authoritarian and so and so forth. Um, uh, obviously, uh, I've had elders like Ashanti Austin, who's a former Black Panther and a member of the Black Liberation Army. Uh, he identifies as uh, Panther anarchist. Of course, there are indigenous anarchists uh, and all different types of interpretations of anarchism and arguably all kinds of different interpretations of Islam. There are more blank spaces on a page than was written in Black. So, you know, otherwise we won't have Marxology and people studying and rereading and reinterpreting Marx over and over again, right? To include all kinds of bodies that have been... Um, uh, renegated to the fringes, if you will, um, uh, in the classical remarks. So um, I came to the understanding that any Muslim or non-Muslim will come to me and eventually say, well, show me in the Quran, particularly the Quran, where God says that I need to be an anti-racist or an anti-capitalist or an anti-authoritarian or whatever it may be. And that's a very legitimate question. And mind you, I distinguish between being anti-something in a rhetorical position and actually being able to extract the non-authoritarian, non-capitalist practices or whatever it may be that actually inform one's own intellectual Tradition. And so this is where decolonization and certain plays an active role 
a material role and a role that's related to land because these practices are related to bodies and by extension land of which we're very much a part of uh, their extension of the spirit world the law of creation and so on and so forth so um dealing yes with the etymology with hermeneutics with understandings of of concepts of practices becomes something that's important how can one use the term islamic state including daesh and isis itself that uses and refers to itself as a dawla islamia when there is no such thing as a concept of a state within islam um so that becomes fundamental because if we say that a lot of orthodox Muslims would like to say, mainstream Muslims would like to say, well, Islam is the solution to everything. Okay, well, in order to apply this Islam, we need to understand the contemporary. Is Islam against capitalism? And can we distinguish between markets and capitalism? Because those are very different types of concepts, right? Uh, does Islam allow for the ownership of property? And is it the same understanding as the Protestant ethic that informs capitalist understandings of property? Uh, especially when al-mulk belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when all property, when all and everything belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we're accountable for it. So what are the foundations, the ethical, political concepts, practices that inform an egalitarian Quran of the oppressed, that inform social justice Islam, that inform really the foundation upon Islam was founded. As I said in a podcast the other day of the Prophet had come and said, well, you need to do this and do that. You need to wear the hijab, no alcohol, no this and that. And we knew for the first 10, 15 years or 12 years of the Prophet Muhammad's mission as a messenger, and as a Nabi and as a prophet, um, that they came out to lay down the foundation of Tawheed. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Why? Because it forms an anti-authoritarian social justice parameter by which if you understand that you're only going to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that means you're not going to pledge allegiance to a nation state, to a leader, to a tribe, to your kin, to nothing whatsoever. Um, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the principles that they command Muslims by. Um, now we can sit down and talk about who and what is Muslim, but that's part of the dilemma and discussion that, again, using the Quran actually reveals. Because the Quran is a very complicated text, as you know. It contains lots of parables, lots of metaphors. It contains verses like Surah Al-Ghayb or Al-Akhruf Al-Mutaqatiyat that nobody knows the meaning of. Surah Al-Baqarah, the chapter of the cow, begins with Alif Lam Mim. Nobody knows the meaning of those three conjoined letters con that form an Arabic word, right? Um, and of course, words change meaning from one verse to another. That all becomes very fundamentally important. So what does one do when both Arab speakers or non-Arab Muslim Arabic speakers mistranslate? And what becomes the danger of mistranslation? And what, what do we benefit when we go to the roots? And what does Islam have to say about governance? What does it have to say about economics? And so on. And how can that lay the foundation, if at all, for a different type of world, for a pluriverse kind of world? Um, so, yeah, especially over this span of 1,443 years of history, surely there's something to be said there. Um, so, yeah, political theology is uh, very vital to this conceptualization, but so are other discourses like feminisms, like uh, settler colonialism, and so on and so forth. The Quran is with the lens that you read it with, just as much as Muslim feminists have been telling us, the majority of men that are reading the Quran are reading it with and from the lens of men. And from whatever it may be, even if they're feminist men, but nonetheless, patriarchy has the capacity to seep into that particular reading. So what do we read it when we read it with a holistic sense of social justice and not one that is merely concerned with gender issues or race issues, but one that seeks to address the conundrum of the world that we live in? Uh, 
in this moment. Mm-hmm. And so in, is this the what you're framing as anarchic jihad in the beginning of the kind of the first few chapters you're setting kind of the parameters around this? Precisely so. Anarchic jihad becomes the methodology by which, because jihad is the right and the right to reason that any Muslim has, uh, provided that they expend the effort before be, 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 that they struggle with the text. Um, and anarchic jihad becomes the anarchistic mode of jihad in which I'm trying to understand. Well, we live in a world of capitalist nation states, so I want to know what the Quran ostensibly will say about questions of authority, let alone the states, because certain questions were also left very open and abstract. Islam does not prescribe a particular mode of governance. It does provide an abstract set of concepts like the ummah, like dawla, but then it focuses on anti-authoritarian commitments, for instance, like shura, like, uh, which is mutual consultation, ijma'ah, community consensus, maslaha, public welfare, tawheed, or deification of only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and worship of only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, khulafa in the plural, caretakers, and so on and so forth. All of us are caretakers and visitors of the land. So again, what does that mean when chapters in the Quran are titled, you know, the, the chapter of the bees, the chapter of Surah Nahal, Surah Rai, the chapter of thunder, the chapter of the sun, the chapter of the moon. So they're named after creation at the same time. So shouldn't that remind then Muslims of a radical, ecological, ecosophic commitment to a crumbling world in which we've ravaged and pillaged uh, non-human life for our own ulterior motives? What does that mean in terms of Gulf monarchies and in terms of you know, natural resources that are extracted that are kept for particular segments of society, elite ethnic segments of society, tribal segments of society. Uh, what does that mean in the context of, you know, the so-called Arab Spring and um, endeavors towards adala ishtima'i or social justice for all? And why then do we understand or can we understand that the Arab Spring has failed and will continue to fail? Um so, and how do we institute change? How do we see through a different world? Is Mu'mi Abu Jamal, and I, as I like to say, and he wisely noted a, a world in which children who come from immortality and are the errors that we shoot towards infinity have a different world uh, in which all our fires are connected. Uh, so that becomes the, the goal, the mission of the book. What is jihad? What is qikal? Does Islam really condone violence? What kind of violence? And how does that diverge? How does that intersect with BIPOC traditions that are not necessarily Muslim or coming at it from Muslim perspectives either? Um, so it is an attempt of that way, again, to connect to my kin and to our ancestors and to honor our journey. Why do we have to constantly borrow or appeal to what modernity and civilization has imposed upon us? And obviously that burden always falls upon somebody like me or other Muslim feminists, too, that they have to justify, show, explain um, their own sense of being, their own sense of identity. Well, why should I have to do that if I believe that Islam is inherently feminist? White feminists don't need to do that. They simply advocate for feminism. Um, you know, the only people that don't have to justify their hyphenated American identities are white Americans because they're considered to be the natives of the land. Everybody else is hyphenated, native, black, Muslim American, Asian American, and so on and so forth. That's just really trying to undo language um, and contend with the circulatory dynamics of what is happening within Euro-American societies and non-Euro-American societies, particularly the Swana region, like I said, because I think a lot of what 
sand is also easily extrapolated to other geographies, obviously beyond Egypt, just as much as I'm not just talking about the US and Canada, so far as being fellow colonial societies, one can hardly say the same with regards to Australia, New Zealand, Israel, and so on and so forth. So uh, so yeah, and to do so, I, I defer to this methodology referred to as anarchic ijtihad. Uh, I begin to talk about what ijtihad involves, what it means, uh, because it's not something that's so easy and so blasé uh, either. A command of language, you have to know the genealogy of words, you have to know the things like isnad, the genealogy of like oral narration and tradition, the revelation of contexts uh, in which certain verses were revealed. Uh, what are the khususiyat, the particulars that particular verses are met for, versus al-umumiyat, the more public kind of verses in which we can extract certain things from. What are the what, what are the the ethics versus the morals, the ethics and so far as what can we or have the liberty to apply in different situations and contexts versus moral dictums in general. Thou shall not kill as a moral dictum. Of course, Islam, just as many other traditions will say, you know, uh, yeah, one should not kill. Of course, Islam says and carries that message. But then the Quran comes about and asks Muslims and non-Muslims for that matter, you know, well, you know, when you've been driven from your homes, when you've been murdered, when you've been raped, when you've been pillaged and so on and so forth, at a certain point, one also resorts to the right to self-defense as much as that's constrained within certain ethical political parameters. We see, again, this, this is what anarcha jihad allows. Jihad, as we all know, means, and again, there are different forms of ijtihad, the most widely known are the greater jihad, uh, uh, from which ijtihad is also related to, when you know, the, the religious reasonings, but jihad generally falls in jihad al-akbar, the struggle with one's own privileges against one's own microfascism, and then the smaller jihad in the context of to go to battle. But the actual word for battle, the actual word to go to war is qital in Islam. But you never see that within discourses that uh, be it within mainstream or even intellectually or even as a grassroots when we're discussing is Islam violent or not or the context in which it condones and allows for Ketel and the right to respond and so on and so forth and bear arms and so on according to again cardinal rules of war um, versus situations in which no that is not necessary and patience is extolled and so on and so forth so um, I'll, I'll stop there no, for a moment no. No, I think one of the things that I found really compelling about the book is that it is kind of um, a really excellent example of just like the hermeneutical process and what you're modeling for us of how we could do this kind of interpretation um, and like kind of the historical legacy of that and what it looks in, like in, in a contemporary moment. And so I think scholars or any listeners who teach courses on, you know, the Quran or chronic hermeneutics, um, you know, and political theology would like really enjoy using this as an important text in their course to kind of model that process because you really outlined it for us. Um, and so I think the subsequent chapters, from my understanding, you kind of then go through kind of thematic kind of pillars of what um, um, anarchic Islam, you know, what some of these um, the negotiations are, be it with kind of non-authoritarian or relationship with the nation state. Um, one of the chapters, chapter four, for example, real, really is dealing with capitalism and racial capitalism. Mm -hmm. I found this a really interesting chapter, especially the way you deal or are engaging with property and caretaking, which you kind of signaled to a little bit in, in your comments before um and um so like maybe we could process this like what does this model that you're really highlighting and you kind of give us like several things to keep in mind mm -hmm. um, in this chapter four um how are you relating to uh property in this chapter um, according to mm -hmm. this model that you're setting up 
and what is kind of the, you know, what is the responsibility, I guess, of, of Muslims or human beings in this context of caretaking, right? Especially in when, when we're in like environmental catastrophe as we are at this moment, where even the idea of property seems really like pointless, right? Because the world seems to be on fire. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's where I, what I was kind of projecting onto this chapter as I was reading. I don't know if that's what you read, you wrote it for, but that was kind of what I was reflecting on, but yeah. So um, thank you again. I, you know, I obviously fall, and perhaps this is what distinguishes, you know, and what appeals insofar as anarchisms in relationship to, say, Marxist-Leninisms, if you will, or Marxisms, is, and it's a big philosophical, political question, and it has ramifications on social movements, as, as we know, because if you're starting off from different foundations, therefore, your ultimate strategic goal will vary. So is capitalism separable from the state? That becomes very fundamental because if we go by a lot of social movement scholarship, particularly newest social movement scholarship, um, indigenous, black, uh, people of color, and there's a lot in a growing number, let alone if we go by history, uh, Ferdinand Bordel, for instance, a lot of our structuralists have argued regarding the inseparability of the nation state or questions with regards to authority from the questions relating to capitalism and property. Though the nation state and capitalism may have different uh, uh, short-term animosities or long-term strategic interests will remain the same, uh, ultimately. Um, And that becomes very central to sitting down because one of the things that I note also in the book is that it's impossible to distinguish or to disentangle an anti-status or an anti-capitalist Islam from what precedes it, which is the anti-authoritarian components. Because we have to understand then what khulafa is, what caretaking is, in order to talk about then caretakers in the context of property. We have to also understand the role of what property is supposed to serve. Um, If we become and we begin from the ontological epistemological basis that all property belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and all natural resources as Islam and the Quran explicitly command belong to all of humanity. They are not to be commodified, materialized, so water, natural resources, let alone that Islam advocates for a very foundational at least basic quality of life, not just standard of living, but real quality of life in which food, shelter, clothing, basic amenities are provided for because how are you to be attentive to other matters in life of great value, of great importance, if you're running every single day from nine to five merely to pay your rent, your mortgage, to put your kids in school, and so on and so forth. So Islam came to found that as a foundation. Part of that occurs through, again, a different ontological, epistemological, not only understanding of property, but also then our sense of caretaker. Islam advocates for what is referred to as usul al-mas'uliyat, which means the politics of responsibility, as opposed to a politics of rights, as the state does, because that's the way that the state functions. It's my right versus your rights. No, this al-umumiyat or al-maslaha al-ijtima'iyat takes prevalence as much as the individual autonomy is preserved. So if we're living in the same house, for instance, and I decide to uh, paint my room pink uh, that is my own individual choice etc but I, if I decide to take down a load bearing wall well sorry other folks in the house do have a responsibility as a matter of fact to call me out and for there to be a process of to deal with those particular kinds of grievances so property is not implicitly 
does not implicitly belong to a Muslim or Muslim per se, because number one, they're accountable. Number two, they're responsible to the broader community. If I took a piece of land in order to innovate, for instance, a particular project that would benefit the community on it, Islam allows that with the consent of the community, with an understanding of what that project will be, and without asserting a certain hegemony, because Islam also advocates through Mubaraba and Musharaka through a cooperative model of economic, political exchange, and a dynamic exchange that constantly causes the circulation of power and economics amongst the community within itself. It does that through, for instance, concepts of zakah. Zakah, as we know, is not and is mistranslated as all texts know. Zakah is the right of the poor over the wealthy. And what is, is given, for instance, uh, Muslims are required to hand over those finances or that amount of zakah to the poor. And they're not just supposed to hand it over, as I was describing the other day. It's supposed to occur without any outside mediation. So no NGOs, no jami'at, uh, khayriya that goes and distributes that money because you're supposed to feel the plight of the poor. You're supposed to have that engagement with them on the streets. You're supposed to look the house, the, the, the uh, homeless people in the eye um, as opposed to pretending that they don't exist. And you're supposed to hold out your hand and poor people are supposed to take what belongs to them from your hand because it is their right. Um, other concepts, of course, uh, uh, you know, include Ramadan that very much complement that. These are, insofar as when Muslims fast, abstain, abstain from intimacy, uh, drinking uh, water, again, the idea of the plight of the poor. But we see now in Muslim societies, predominantly Muslim societies, particularly in, in um, um, uh, um, in the Swana region, that more is wasted during Ramadan than any other time of the year. So again, it's the conjunction of different ontological, hermeneutical understandings of property with concepts of, okay, for all khulafa, then what becomes a responsibility if Muhammad abuses a particular property or piece of land that the community has allowed or permitted Muhammad to engage in a particular project with regards to then it becomes incumbent in the community, and I lay down these rules to first warn Muhammad to try and reason with Muhammad, but if Muhammad exceeds, then it is the right of the community to take that land back, uh, ostensibly, because of the abuse of power, because I am employing and engaging in indentured servitude of labor, and so on and so forth. So there are checks and balances, but it's one that the community keeps, and it's the one that the community is able to do so, because it is a horizontalist community. Once you begin to organize it vertically, that's when the danger seeps in because Muhammad reaches a particular point of authority or other people that are interested in Muhammad's project that may benefit and gain and our positions of power may want Muhammad to continue on that selfish individualist project because ultimately that feeds into their own sense of nepotism and wealth and exacerbation. So uh, it is a reminder of in so many ways humility um, of our fightingness as a species. Um, and what we owe, uh, the relations that we have, all our relations in life. Um, and yeah, how does how does one achieve that? What uh, you know? So yeah, that that becomes really the foundation of of the anti-capitalist or non-capitalist component uh, uh, of the interpretation within itself. Mm. And of course, there are other concepts and practices, perhaps that I I, I did discuss. But yeah, yeah. And so far as that, yeah. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I mean, each chapter is so rich and we're not doing justice to it. So hopefully um, listeners will be compelled to pick up the book and go dive deeper into uh-huh. the chapters. Um, but I'm kind of picking out some thematic um, aspects that came out. I mean, chapter five for me was a really powerful chapter because I think the tone of it was a little bit different in the beginning, uh, partly because we really see your activist life come out in terms of the way you've been exposed. Well, you've been on the front lines, right? Like all the, the mobilizing that you've done um, and your experience in spaces, um, public spaces, um, in terms of the m- movements you've been part of um, and how you've experienced violence. So there was like this autoethnographic portion of chapter five that I found really powerful. Um, and you use this really to pivot into this question of armed self-defensive violence, right? And mm-hmm. um, what are kind of the ethical and political principles of war, um, you know, jihad. Um, and so this is a really powerful chapter, partly because you're also bringing in this issue of gender and sexuality and masculinity and like what, you know, what is the relationship to violence in that? So can you, you know, I don't know if you want to reflect a little bit about your own experiences that prompted for you to write the chapter the way that you did before we we could talk about some of the, the conceptual work that you're doing in this chapter. So, um, that was the most difficult chapter, honestly, to write. I, I, I had could yeah, feel it. Yeah, I could feel it. It was the most challenging chapter to write. Um, and perhaps I should have said this uh, from the beginning. The, the book is a reincarnation of a skeletal form uh, that I had developed uh, or that, and defended, actually, in my MA thesis in 2009. So yeah. that's where anarcho-Islam first appeared, if you will, but it was very rudimentary. It was an MA thesis, so, you know, um, there isn't a discussion of settler colonialism, of, of geopolitics, of, it was really the bare born of, of gender, of sexuality, of uh, of the of race, and so on and so forth. Uh, it was what it was on the time, and over the past 15 years, and with the PhD and the events that I witnessed, it, it has gone through several incarnations um, uh, across or along the way. That chapter, like I noted, was very challenging and is and remains very triggering. I have not really read it uh, since um, I, yeah, had gone through the last revisions uh, because immediately I'm drawn back to specifically the Tahrir in the first 18 days of the Tahrir. Um, it's a cry of complaint. It's an elegy. It's a wail, if you will, um, a painful one. Uh, it's trauma. It's also seeking uh, a response. It's seeking healing. Uh, as a matter of fact, and it's trying to use both experience, but also, as Bell Hook said, theory, because it's a form of liberatory practice. Um, 
as a means of developing what I refer to as a biodiverse strategy of resistance. Um, so all this discussion of things like, well, you have the, uh, you know, the anti-black misogynist Gandhi and this fetishization that comes about, well, and says, um, you know, and, and preaches the doctrine of nonviolence. Well, Gandhi was also the one that said, if there's violence in our hearts, then it's better to be violent than to don the cloak of nonviolence to cover up our impotence. And what kind of nonviolence did Indians practice? And then one has to go back to events like their Sati Grafa, in which Indians, yeah, engaged in nonviolent protests uh, be, be, because over the the, um, the salt taxes that the British were imposing at the time on Indians, but they were willing to be beaten to death. If that's one's understanding of nonviolence, um, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, what about the violence insofar as the sexism, the racism, the ableism, uh, the classism that we're exposed to every single day? Is not that a form of violence? So again, it's desire to unravel words and their meanings. They're structural forms of violence, they're revolutionary, they're symbolic uh, violence, and really go through the again the etymology of the, this thing called violence and this non-existence of of and the metaphorization of non-violence and even if we go back to martin and we begin to think through and we see the transition um especially after the march on washington and his disillusionment with the hallways and corridors of power. Um, and perhaps this is the reason that he was assassinated, the, the realization of how nonviolence in so many ways protects the state and how is one to be nonviolent in day and age in which you have COINTELPRO, there's distrust within communities, uh, and, you know, post-Snowden 9-11 world, the surveillance, the control, um, the dividing and conquering of movements, how the CIA trains, you know, agents, activists in nonviolence, a blunt from the revolutionary potential versus the red and black power movement and how they took control into their own hands in a certain sense. So the Black Panthers didn't wait, so they didn't try and legislate laws or reform this and that. No, they established their free breakfast programs, they took over their neighborhoods, free schools, free hospitals, just as much as the Zapatistas many, many years later would do in 1994 when they declared war on the Mexican state and still continue to, and are prepared to arm and defend their neighborhoods, their lands, their people, and whoever is allying with them. Now, of course, there are many faults that we also learn from social movements and we need to be honest and genuine with regards to that equally at the same time but that becomes something that's very important now i also note that violence is not a strategy it is very much a tactic of resistance and in any movement to me foundationally if a movement is to call itself revolutionary in any kind of sense there need to be three things and without which you really don't have a revolutionary movement merely the fantasy but number one you need to create alternatives on the ground alternative hospitals schools because the theory is you either reinvest in the dominant order and try and change things within which is highly unlikely and if it changes it will change for a minority few people etc it's not necessarily permanent uh, within itself we see the the retraction of the right to abortion, queer marriage, and so many different other things within the settler colonial of this free and democratic America, uh, of which many deify around the world. But, or you divest and you build those alternatives with like-minded kin who share ethical political commitments and so on along the way. You build your schools, you build your hospitals, you build your abolitionist transformative justice spaces. You're not waiting because simply we don't have the luxury of time. Um, and to assume otherwise is quite arrogant and feeds into the scientific rationalist sort of enlightenment teleological sort of understanding of the course of history that we have time to save the earth and so on and so forth. 
Uh, number two, uh, as part of this biodiverse strategy of resistance or what constitutes a regulatory movement, you have to have decolonized education, a story in the end that connects BIPOC traditions or allies, kin. Um, you need to provide alternative forms of knowledge uh, and the mainstreaming of those. We are all kinds of media, be it social media or otherwise, be it actual text, be it artistic forums, uh, and so on. So, But you need to provide an alternative foundation for knowledge, for education. Uh, and obviously here I distinguish between information, not that I you know, don't have a great deal of respect for some journalists, uh, and but knowledge within itself. So the knowledge keeping that is involved with that. And of course that's a crisis within itself because we know a lot of knowledge keepers, particularly within the Ivy Tower, we produce a lot of, again, Eurocentric assumptions all the time, including Muslims, of course, including us, right? Um, number three, which uh, is very important, is the preparation form, yeah, our defense, the, the right to defend um, ourselves, our communities, our lands, um, and our ways of life. Um, so th that's the chapter. It's, it's delving into red and black power. It's delving, obviously, into the concepts of Petel, of Jihad. It's beginning to, it lays down the rules of war. It talks about the context in which the war emerged and the right to self-defense emerged within Islam because Muslims weren't afforded that right. And they were, and Allah was, wanted to teach Muslims, and this is the point of the book, you know, when Muslims talk about patience post 9-11 and patience post the destruction of Libya and Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and so on and so forth. Look, I'm all for the valorization of sabr and patience and it's an important skill and tactic. And yes, we are required to embody it, but they don't pay attention to the latter part of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's verses in this so far is we also reserve the right to self-defense uh, to protect not only ourselves, but our kin. Uh, and that becomes the point, because we cannot sit down and sustain over 500 years of oppression and say, and bask in the hope that America will fulfill its dream. As Malcolm had taught, it can be both. It can be an American dream and an American nightmare. It's one or the two. Um, and that's my problem with progressive politics. That's my problem with liberalism that seeps into leftist politics, including Marxists, anarchists. Um, in general, and I find liberalism to be much more insidious that way. I can deal, as I was telling my students the other day, with Trump. I can deal with conservatives that come about and declare wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that call me an Uncle Tom or that call me, you know, uh, as they would call Arabs and continue to call Arabs as San Negros. I can deal with that because that's overt. That's in my face. I can deal with the racism that way. What I can't deal with is the multicultural benevolent. Uh, we love all people of color. I have black people as friends. I have Muslims as friends, so I can't be a racist or I'm not a racist and I'm an ally. Well, let's push the emblem of that up until we talk about black liberation and indigenous liberation and land back and what that means. Would you really be willing then to forego your rights and begin to fulfill your responsibilities as settler? And here I'm particularly talking to, you know, all migrants, but particularly settler of color Muslims, uh, when you're going about in the street and you're screaming free, free Palestine. Well, you're a Zionist on stolen land. What are you doing for indigenous struggles and the fact that this land is stolen? What are you doing insofar as Arab supremacy and anti-blackness that exists within Swana communities? Despite the fact that we have black South Asians, we have black Palestinians, and it's a very complicated world. And this is part of the identity politics, right? Is, is 
you know, we have all kinds of narratives. You Arabs are slave traders, no different from, uh, you know, uh, the transatlantic slaves. Uh, but then, you know, there's a conflation of what slavery was during the medieval period with contemporary slavery versus obviously the Middle Passage experience and the brutality of that. Uh, but we also see black on black ethnocentrism that plays out not only in the context of uh, the US and uh, in, in Canada, for instance, we also see it insofar as um, in the context of Palestine, where we have black um, Mizrahi, uh, Sephardic Jews, and again, this is part of the white supremacist Zionist project, um, to pit people of color, and just as much as it exists everywhere, it's Euro-American manifestation everywhere, in terms of that white supremacist project, right? even within Wahhabism uh, in Saudi Arabia. But we see a situation, instances in which, yeah, African diasporas, Jewish diasporas are oppressing and taking the lands of Black Palestinians and non-Black Palestinians. So, you know, the internationalization of Blackness, how that, you know, how that works when we look at Black Lives Matter, right, and the protests, what, what, what um, uh, Roman Kelly refers to as sort of the, the Black Spring uprisings, right? Incredible and inspiring. What are they building? And I'm all for cathartic acts for direct actions. We did in Tahrir. In fact, 99 police stations were burnt down in Tahrir. But what alternatives have been burnt, have been built? Would it not have been useful to take those 99 police stations and house the homeless or squat them or establish some urban sort of kind of zapatismo on the community gardens, all kinds of things? So the lack of imagination, and if anything, colonialism has stripped that away from us is our ability to redream dangerously different kinds, borderless worlds, if we all agree that these are arbitrary borders that divide indigenous land, that divide Swana nations, we have the context of India and the partition and India and Pakistan and Kashmir and Bangladesh and so on and so forth. How do we begin to construct again the alternative to reverse world, given all that's been internalized by us as individuals and on the micro-political level, but at the horizontal level, how, how do we begin to build something differently? And that becomes the quest. Violence is a part of it. We're exposed to violence, psycho-effective violence. That's phenomenon. And we replicate that violence in reactionary impulses that we have. Either we become ISIS or Al-Qaeda, um, engage in this wanton, uh, impotent kind of violence uh, out of the sense of brutality that we feel, but then we reproduce the oppression not only amongst ourselves, I mean, the majority of people that suffered because of Al-Qaeda and ISIS are Muslims themselves. It's not Western white people or soldiers, as a matter of fact. Um, or we become hyphenated, good, orientalized citizens that just want to be good Americans, be good Canadians, you know, uh, perhaps become the next, you know, Obama, become the next this or that. Uh, Ilhan Omar, AOC, no disrespect to these women and, and the prejudice that they are exposed to, but it's highly problematic, the politics that they're engaged in. Uh, you know, it's a settler colonial society, and again, it's either founded on ongoing genocide, etc., or it is an American dream, but you can't have it both at the same time. But that's part of the violence that empire is constantly reproducing and that we internalize. And we don't really reflect upon that because we like to, or we want to 
play according to the rules that our masters, our colonial masters had laid down. You know, we stick to the curbs. God, heaven forbid that we get onto the roads, engage in snake marches. We need to get our permits before we go and we protest because heaven forbid. I mean, what could be more than the women's march in which you're protesting, you know, anti-Black police brutality. You're protesting that it's stolen land, but you're on stolen land and you're surrounded by trigger-happy cops. Mm. So, you know, yeah, what kind of pinkwashing, what kind of whiteness is seeping into then these kinds of mobilizations? And again, I'm not trying to say that mobilizations are useful. They are, and direct action is important, but that's just a tactic. What are we actually building? That becomes the, 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 the idea here. And on what foundations are we building what it is that we're building? As mu'minin, as believers, in, in a higher sense of justice, if you will, uh, and not just as, as, uh, as Muslims within itself. So, Mm, yeah, that's powerful. And I think this chapter would be so interesting, not only to perhaps scholars who are teaching on social justice movements or um, transnational like um, um, movements, but also to activists, I would imagine, you know, particularly mm -hmm. chapter. And as, as I'm thinking about this book and stepping back a little bit, um, do you have any advice for like activists on the ground who are listening to us now and are probably, um, you know, really hearing what you're saying and shifting towards I love this idea of shifting from tactic to what is the actual goal what is the aim what mm -hmm. is the project right um so I mean aside from maybe encouraging them to pick up this book and kind of think through their own politics and think through their own work what do you think maybe should be the takeaway for activists who are on the ground who are doing this type of work that you're engaging with and for helping them to think differently perhaps well a lot of indigenous people have long said and that's an excellent question I think you should and a lot of indigenous people have long said that you know voting is not a form of power reduction when you're voting you're legitimizing the settler colonial order and i'm talking particularly here on the context of well settler colonial societies but particularly the u.s and canada um and uh, that distinction between a tactic and a strategy um voting at best is a tactic but at whose expense in terms of erasure does it come at. Uh, that becomes a question. And um, if we're lured by Debbie Haaland, you know, Indigenous Minister of Interior in the U.S., you know, Homeland and so on and so forth, then we really need to start thinking seriously about to the idols, the kind of righteousness of puritanical politics that comes to play at the grassroots, because it's also a product of that. Activists tend to be very puritan, in, in, and I'll call out the anarchists for this, in uh, the way that they operate. Um, they take it as a self-righteous, they internalize the self-righteous martyrdom complex, right? Where I need to eat like crap, dress like crap. You know, I, I really need to feel the revolution to my bones. And look, I need to feel, and I want to feel the revolution to my bones, but we also have a responsibility to ourselves. And I don't mean that in some narcissistic individualist, you know, hot yoga sort of act, <laughs> right? Or little like garden that we grow our tomatoes or fruits without thinking about sharing that with our communities or our kin or our neighbors. And, and again, people whose lands have been dispossessed or people that simply don't have access to food and, and, uh, and so on. So the problem with activists is ideological, they're constrained, they're siloed, they're compartmentalized, but one can say the same thing with regard to academics who claim intersectionality, although they deploy intersectionality in very toothless ways. Um, that's 
that's a crisis. The, the crisis is in a post-alternative fact-truth world. Uh, we become very entrenched in dogma, in ideological positioning. And one thing that this book is out to rattle is it's not a matter of somebody calling themselves an anarchist or a Muslim that makes them my kin. It's the ethical and political foundations that ought to have informed identities or the inter- or these embraced identities or whatever embraced identities that one chooses. Um, if you're an anarchist who's a misogynist, just as much as you're a Muslim who's a misogynist, you're no kin of mine. And that becomes the idea. If you're a Jewish who's anti-Zionist, then yeah, we have something to build on together. Um, that becomes the question. What is it that we can then move insofar as the limitations of identity politics from a strategic point that way? Because again, identity politics are founded on white ontological and epistemological assumptions within themselves. So uh, how can we disentangle that and begin to think about the ethics and politics that ought to inform our identities as opposed to some abstract sense of identity? Um, so yeah, it's not about you know particular groupings or ideological positionings um, as much as it is founding and decolonizing and re-indigenizing vis-a-vis the ethical political commitments that we all believe and form practically, symbolically, materially, um, the labels that we embrace. Somebody once taught me, actually, an elder, embrace your labels to let go of them. They don't owe you. Uh, what you owe is that label if you are to take on that label, and we're all a set of conjunctive ends as opposed to just conjunctive ors. I'm a Muslim and an anarchist and a feminist and a lot of things. I don't need to be one thing or the other. Again, that's a binary way of thinking. Um, then what can kind of those identities or those means of belonging speak to insofar as one another? Um, and a semblance of existence that makes sense, that is coherent and holistic. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, and what does Islam say? Islam advocates for a sovereign ummah, to reverse ummah. That includes, again, if I have to go by the Machina Charter, the Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, but particularly the Medina Charter, the Mithaf uh, al-Medina, um, that saw Muslims, Jews, Christians, uh, uh, Sabians, and so on and so forth, as one polity. But what bound this polity together, this ummah together? That becomes also the question um, and the search. Uh, and we look over the spans of the medieval period, right? And again, it's, it's and I'm not going to speak to a thousand, I mean, I do, but I'm not going to get into maybe gritty details, but we need to explore and examine that history. Uh, Muslims consisted and organized it themselves for the most part, of course, nepotism fed in and corruption and arrogance and so on and so forth. But they lost the original foundations which Islam laid down to bear as the Prophet was alive. And shortly that got lost as time progressed. Uh, Muslims, when they think about the original polity, after the Prophet's death, they think about either Abu Bakr or Omar or Uthman or Ali. But they don't understand that all these figures, including al-Muhadithat, the wives of the Prophet, women within the Muslim polity, had complemented one another in character. For instance, um, uh, Omar was known as uh, Al-Farooq, the decisive one, because he was very. He came late to Islam, and he was he, he experienced this kind of zealous feeling for Islam. Right? He was very staunch. He wanted to like be strict insofar as what's right, what's wrong, and so on. Abu Bakr was soft-hearted. He was very gentle, right, in comparison to Omar. Although we see situations in which um, 
things are reversed or the characteristics are reversed. But generally, that was their character. Uthman was known as the Sakhi, you know, someone who's very generous insofar as his wealth. Ali was the door of knowledge. The Prophet needed all these kinds of different characters to complement his own. In founding that polity, that social just polity, um, and we begin to see Muslims interpreting, no, you either have to have one Khalifa or the other, a single so-called leader, but Muslims had already internalized that revolutionary anti-authoritarian ethic that they were putting into practice, and that activists need to be putting into practice, because, you know, I hate this thing when activists, and sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded response to this question, but what activists isn't capable of authoritarian tendencies, isn't capable or isn't participating in materialist tendencies, isn't participating ostensibly in sexist, in this and that. I'm sorry, we all participate. This is what makes the greater jihad of the fight against our fascism. Inner fascism is very important. And again, here's a word that's thrown around all the time. This fascist, that fascist. Trump is a fascist. No, Trump was trying to become a totalitarian. And if we read Hannah Arendt's words of totalitarianism, we'd be able to determine the difference between that and fascism. We're all fascists vis-a-vis the asymmetric privileges and power that plays out between us every single day. Institutions and the state is not something that is set over and above us. We are the ones that embody the relations, both within and outside the institutions, every single day. And as we learn, we all have power that way. That's why we always even yell out and scream in the streets when we're protesting, all power to the people. Well, if all power is to the people, then we all the people need to understand their power relationships to one another, as opposed to, again, trying to figure out this mediator or arbiter, in this case, the state, to mediate the differences between us. We can do that on our own. Another thing that I believe becomes very important and agreeing about this is how do we resolve our conflicts with one another? The ethics of disagreements are what Islam refers to as usul al-ikhtiyat. No two people are going to have their commitments fully aligned with one another or personalities 100%. That requires that we learn how to deal with, because there are sources and reasons for disagreements that people have. They're ideological, but they also involve elements of the ego and so on, righteousness and so on and so forth. So, and how do we offer hospitality or how do we actually establish spaces in which we get to know one another and listen to one another and not just hear one another? Because that's, I think that's part of the humility or what allows for humility to seep in. Knowledge that I didn't presume, that I no longer should presume I own or know the truth of. We all have facets of the truth. What can we do when we collectively gather those truths together we will be able to achieve a greater understanding of the forest of the, through the trees, but also the trees within themselves and accomplishing that within itself. So um, experiences, a multiplicity of experiences, that's what I would advise activists to have, to really invest. I'm sorry, going to protests in support of women's rights, in support of the anti-war protests in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we see it all the time um, because and I'll say why this becomes very important. We're in a day and age in which we're experiencing online schizophrenia, where we all are really are schizophrenic. We're shopping around for solidarities everywhere. There's so many causes beyond our ability to coalesce them together. Of course, there is a narrative that coalesces all these causes together, but we're shopping around. This is going on in Kashmir. A third of Pakistan is flooded. Indigenous people are continuing to undergo genocide. Another black man, woman, child, etc., was just assassinated today without impunity by the police and so on and so forth. Momia is still in prison. 
it never ends. Asada's still out there and they're trying to, you know, bring her back to justice. What does where does one begin? Where does one end? Um, that requires certainly strategy, but it also requires that um, we collectively, not only when we get together, engage in those acts of humility, solidarity, of affection uh, that we participate in. But we begin to think what the cost-benefit analysis is from participating in stra certain strategies over others um, and the consequence of what all that will ultimately be. And it, again, whose costs insofar as the continuation of uh, of oppression within itself. I think there was another point that I was out to get, but forgive me, it sort of uh, perhaps got lost in the plurethora of, uh, of, yeah, just dynamic and incredible questions that you've been asking and, um, and yeah, my responses, so. No, that's amazing. And I think that really gets at some of what you're trying to do in this book. Um, when I, I sorry, I did, I, did, I did actually remember, if I may interrupt you, what I was about to say is it's, it's very often in the case of an activist will show up to protest, but they won't involve in, invest in the communities itself. I'll show up to the anti-war protests in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I'll never visit a mosque. I'll right. never talk to Muslims. And I won't invest in those struggles beyond the superficial, oh, I'm against Islamophobia. That's, I guess, the point that I invest in the communities that you were supposedly standing in solidarity in. How many Muslim settlers, academics or otherwise, have visited indigenous nations or territories that are next to them? And of course, the response would surprise a lot of folks that not a lot of people have. So sorry to interrupt you, but that was actually my point. Yeah, and an important point as well. Um, is it okay if I read the the last paragraph of your chat? It's weird that I'm reading it to the author, but I think um, in your yes. conclusion, um, your conclu conclusion chapter is powerful. But the, the last chapter, um, the last paragraph of that chapter, I think really just does wonders. And it's a bit of a long paragraph, but I thought I'd read it. I've never done this before, but let's do it anyway. But yeah. Um, um, Self-determination at a personal level means the ability to choose how to identify one's experience, sovereignty over one's body, and respect for the decisions a person makes over their own lives. This is tied to our communities and process-centered modes of living that generate profoundly different grounded normative conceptualization of nationhood and governmentality. Indeed, ones that are not based on enclosure, authoritarian power, and hierarchy, but rather are anchored in ways of knowing that come from land, through practices relating to our modes of intelligence, and hence that include water, air, fire, subsoils, plants, animals, and the spiritual world, a peopled cosmos of symbiotically mutually influencing powers. We must undertake a decolonial struggle until, in the creator's good time, a re-indigenized pluriversal ummah emerges to found a new world. Indeed, this world is drenched in the seas of beautiful madness that are misunderstood yet worth dying for. Not the madness of asylums, but the madness in each of us, a madness hidden that starves and liberates, a madness of our inner unsettling and undoing, indeed, our own becoming. Affirm your non-being then and become. There's no other way out. What a paragraph. <laughs> Thank you. This is this is the irony, right? Is is look, we have the example of the Muslims. They talk about the example of the Prophet and the Prophet certainly was uh, 
um, uh, not was fallible, not in the same way that perhaps because he was a shining example, as arguably all prophets and, and, and messengers are. But we're striving to constantly become, to emulate, right? To embody. It's not an easy feat. So we're always trying to live up to the identity Muslim, just as much as one is always trying to live up to whatever sense of anarchist, but one never reaches there. So one is always becoming, uh, I, I'm not, how can I be an I when I was a wee within my mother's uh, She fed me, she sheltered me, um, you know, I, I, everything was mediated through her up until I was born into a world in which I was socialized, inculcated, inoculated with this, yeah, individualist eye that is separated from anything that it can relate to, except in the cordon forms in which it is determined. You're dressed in pink or blue. And these the, the alienations continue on from there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're not... Avoid compartmentalization. That, that's that's the that's the conclusion right there. Become and there's there's endless becomings, but don't just assume that you're a single being. You're an intersection of stars. What are those stars, and how many stars can we collect mm -hmm. along the way? If we were to see a better sky, a better vision of the sky. So um, so yeah. Thank you for reading that. I hadn't actually read or heard that last paragraph in in quite some time. Thank you. Yeah, no, as I was um kind of thinking about how to um have a conversation, I was just really struck by this final paragraph, and I think um I really see the book as an invitation to sit at a table and have conversations. And I know the conversations are going to be dissonant because I don't think everybody's going to agree on all of the things of the nation state, of the economics, about capitalism, mm -hmm. about identity politics, about all of this stuff, right? Um, and I imagine that that was something that was probably scary for you as an author to write, just to put out this invitation, this strong invitation, and to kind of wait at a table and see who shows up and sits with you, right? And I'm sure that's the part where you're at right now, because the book is out. Um, so I hope people take you up on the offer and, you know, sit down and we talk with each other, talk about, you know, about the process and really process the book that you've kind of written out. Um, so I don't know if that feels accurate, but this was really an invitation to your... It your communities it is uh it is very much so at its times of peace let me put it that way it's very much an invitation uh and it, yeah in the moments of humility in other moments it's a declaration of war to be quite frank a war that BIPOC people have been born into before we've even come to recognize our own names, um, our own traditions, our own practices, uh, knowing who we are or understand how we're complicit in the injustices towards others or oppressed ourselves. That war in which I come to recognize the superiority and the manifestation of uh, a white person's skin that I would go about and bleach my own because of the sense of shame, resentment, of self-internalized hate, uh, because I feel a degree of indignity, of disrespect, of which the only way I see superseding or overcoming is to become uh, my master. Um, um, and and that was that was the impotence. Uh, yeah, I, I, that was ostensibly the tone I, I would. Yeah, I, I would like the book ostensibly or wrote the book and would have liked it to be received. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best with those uh, conversations that are probably going to come out. And I hope they're fruitful and, and I think they're going to be necessary conversations. Um, what can our listeners expect from you in terms of future work? Is there things that you're doing? Is there ways to follow you or follow your work and what you're doing? 
Well, you can, I can, um, insofar as my work, uh, I'm currently working on my second uh, manuscript, revising that, although I had a few articles that were published out of that. Uh, the manuscript, obviously, was my PhD, and it took 10 years to write, so I was interviewing queer feminist Nubians, Sudanese Egyptians, uh, sex workers, uh, trans sex workers, um, uh, and you know, gay men in the military, Egyptian military, but also looking at uh, queer feminist Muslims in the context of Turtle Island and the circulatory dynamics between Islam, gender, sexuality within the framing, if you will, that that is there geopolitically. And through the lens of Tahrir, it also involved historical archival research uh, in Al-Azhar University, most preeminent sort of Islamic uh, institution, arguably in Egypt, if not the world. But uh, the, um, so I'm revising this uh, manuscript for university press uh, involved on the ground with our social movements is, is always being on the land, learning from black indigenous people, uh, particularly um, working towards abolition and, and land back. Uh, so that's an uncompromisable uh, point that I'm after. Um, and trying to organize this speaker series. Hopefully we're going to be uh, here at Cornell. We're going to start off. Well, we started off last year with Dr. Benita Lawrence talking about decolonizing anti-racism. Uh, then we're going to have uh, the next term, uh, inshallah, Dr. Catherine McKittrick, uh, older and old teacher, mine, um, um, as well as Chandra Prescott-Weinstein. We're also hoping to have a panel uh, insofar as Jasper Poor, uh, Harsha Walia, um, Jody Bird, Juliana Hugh-Lewis, uh, and, and so many others, hopefully along the way, you know. Um, so uh, that's that's ostensibly it for the most part. And and yeah, um, I, I have to say that whatever it is that's good in the book, no book is perfect, I may be allowed to do so. It comes from what I learned from my elders, from Black, Indigenous, and people of color, studies, uh, scholars, activists, um, and whatever shortcomings are mine and I take full responsibility for. And so far as how to reach me, uh, I'm available via email, ma845 at cornell.edu. You can also uh, catch me, I think uh, my Twitter handle is at minwe and G major, M-I-N-U-E-T-I-N-G, uh, M-A- uh, G-O-R or J-O-R. Um, yeah, that's, that's, about, uh, that's about it. So. That's awesome. Well, I'm so grateful that you sat down with me to have this conversation, really kind of pushed, you know, the limits of my own knowledge is, and I'm always grateful for all the conversations that we have and really kind of broadening my horizon and welcoming me into your community and spaces and the work that you do and share with me. So I hope um, people pick up the book and read and engage and engage you and really kind of work towards becoming as you've invited us to do. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time uh, and your labor in reading this book. Uh, immense gratitude uh, for your solidarity or for your support. And thank you to the listeners as well. And that was my conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast and I look forward to having you join us again next time. Until then, take good care. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.